Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. of last Sunday as I was greeting people at the door after both of our worship services, people would say, I so have enjoyed this worship series. I'm kind of sad that it's over. And I said, it's not over. We got one more Sunday. So we do have one more Sunday, but you'll notice I don't have a book of discipline today with me. And that's because this part of our series is not to be found there. Perhaps this is an epilogue to what we have read so far in the book of discipline and discussed. But I hope it is not an epitaph, because the future of the United Methodist Church has not yet been decided. It is something that is very much still open and malleable. It is something that, like clay in the hands of a potter, can still be formed. The question is, are we making a pretty piece of art that can never truly be utilized? Or are we making a vessel that we will fill up with God's love and God's grace and God's blessings? And we will invite all of those who hunger and thirst and yearn to experience these gifts of God and invite them to come, to dip their hands in the waters, to drink and soothe their bodies and their spirits. What are we choosing to make and what will we become? That's a much harder, more difficult question because a lot of people are in this period of anxiety, wondering what will happen to the United Methodist Church. I understand that. I, too, have that feeling. And it's not because my entire future and pension system are wrapped up in it. It's because this is my church. This is my denomination. This is the expression of Christianity that most closely unites me with my understanding and experience of God's grace. This isn't just a, a case of loyalty. Oh, this is far more deep and profound than that. For some of us, we're wondering, are we getting ready to lose something that has been a place where we have been grounded in the storms of life? Are we going to perhaps discover that we're going to no longer be able to do ministry to the effect or maybe in the ways that we did before? There's a lot of anxiety and fear around that, and that is totally understandable. But I'm here to tell you the good news. I'm always here to try to tell you the good news. The good news is this, that the future of Methodism will not be decided in 2024 by a delegation of equal clergy and laity. The future of Methodism will not either be decided by a jurisdictional or an annual conference. It will not be decided at a district level. It will not even be decided at a local church level at an annual charge conference. The future of Methodism will be decided in you as individual disciples. You will decide for yourselves what Methodism will become and where it will go. Because Methodism, for a long time, was not its own denomination. Methodism, for a very long time, was not about rules and discipline outside of a covenant of relationships by a small group of people who weren't actually any other denomination than the one that spawned them. They were living out the truth of what we discover if we look even further back into the life of the church than the start of that which would become Methodism. 
Over the time that Christianity has been in existence, from the time that people were encountering the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, people have been trying to figure out what the future will look like. What will it be? What is this thing that Jesus is talking about, this church? What is it and where is it going to be and how do we have influence in it? How are we a part of it? What is the purpose? They've been asking these questions. And in the beginning, it was pretty easy because there were 12 of them. It's a lot easier to get some kind of consensus around 12, maybe. But what ends up happening is that the more people encounter God's grace and love in Jesus Christ, the more that the numbers increase. And the more that the numbers increase, the more that there's more people, and more people means more opinions, more thoughts, more dreams, more hopes, more needs. And from the very beginning, as things are going well and the number are multiplying, according to the book of Acts, what we find is that people are trying to figure out what the future will be. What will happen? And for a while, that original 12 felt very sure that they knew what was going to happen. They were feeling very confident on Palm Sunday. They were feeling pretty good all the way up through Thursday-ish. And then everything changed. Everything changed. That even by Sunday, that first Easter, they still weren't sure that there was going to be a future to this thing that Jesus had done. Because it didn't even seem like there was a future for Jesus. But if we look a little past that, what we find is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ gave them courage and power and authority. And they suddenly realized that the future was theirs. That it had not been ripped away by the violence of the cross. It had not been destroyed by the sealing of the tomb. It was not gone simply because they could no longer see Jesus with their eyes. On Saturday, no, Christ was still very much present with them and for them. And even after Christ resurrected and after Christ ascended to heaven, they finally felt like they knew who they were and where they were going. Because that's always the issue with Christianity. Where are we going? Now, if you've ever been in charge in a church, you know, whether you've been in charge of a small group or a committee, or maybe you were in charge of an entire group of people in the church, you know that it seems like you're trying to move something that doesn't want to go, right? Does this thing even have wheels? Where are we going? Because it's very hard to get a bunch of people to move in the same direction. It's not easy to do. Instead, if we look at the church as the original disciples did, what we find is that the church was a community. It wasn't a building. It wasn't some esoteric understanding of what we're supposed to be. It wasn't a book of rules. It was a community of people who recognized that the greatest connection they had, the one thing that had really changed their lives, was the presence of Jesus Christ. And that united them over any other difference. And differences happened really quickly, so quickly that the book of Acts will record for us the first major issue that they confront. On one side, you have the apostle Peter, Simon Peter, Petrus, the rock. You have him, and he has been handpicked, it seems, by Jesus to lead the remainder of the original apostles and to gather in new ones and to build the church, whatever that will be. You have Peter. And people are feeling kind of confident in Peter because, you know, he actually knew Jesus. It stills confidence. 
And he is very clear on who he is. He was born and raised a Jew. He served the Jewish Messiah. He knows how to be a good Jew, and he watched Jesus be a good Jew. So he's feeling pretty confident on what Christianity might look like moving forward. And that's the path that he takes. But then over here, Jesus is doing a new thing. Without consulting Peter, Jesus calls forth a man named Saul and changes his name to Paul and says to Paul, I don't want you to focus on the Jews. I've got that figured out over here in Jerusalem. No, I'm going to send you out there. I want you to go beyond the geographical boundaries of the promised land. I want you out there with people who have no idea. And I want you to give them God's love and God's grace. I want you to share with them God's truth. Give them the gospel. And after a couple of days of considering this and wallowing in blindness, Paul agrees. And so Paul starts doing the work because if there's anything you know about Paul, it's that he goes right to work and does what he believes he's supposed to do. So he goes to work gathering Gentiles and Gentiles are anybody who's not Jewish. It's a pretty big open category there. And Paul immediately starts to notice something really strange. If you start telling people that God loves them and that God wants to forgive them their mistakes and that God wants to give them the power and the strength to refrain from sinning ever again, people like that. And so his numbers start to multiply. More and more Gentiles are becoming Christians. And then he decides to go and visit the original apostles in Jerusalem. And here we have the title belt between Peter the Rock and Paul the Zealot. And Paul is zealous. He even claims that for himself. If he's been given a task by God, he is going to do it. And he is going to do it to the very best of his ability until there is no longer breath or blood in his body. He is going to do it. And when these two incredible title-holding heavyweights show up in Jerusalem you know that there's the potential for things not to go very smoothly. And that's precisely what happens, because Peter says, you need to make these people Jewish. And Paul says, no, I don't. I'm not here to make them Jewish. I'm here to make them Christian. To which Peter replies, there's no difference. And so these two are set up to rip apart a church that hasn't even really been planted. Tear it in two. Now, if you listen to the account that's in the book of Acts, they have this epiphany moment where the Holy Spirit seems to tell them that it's okay that they aren't doing the exact same thing. And they seem to have this incredible divine revelation where Peter goes, you know what? It's okay that your ministry looks different than mine. That's okay. And it's okay that you're talking to a different group of people because I am here. This is my ministry, and this is what it looks like, and these are the people I am called to be with, and I'm okay that yours doesn't look exactly like mine because you're not trying to change my ministry, and I'm going to respect yours. And they agree to part ways like this, still united in Christ, but focusing on different aspects of ministry to different communities and creating new communities of the body of Christ in those separate communities. Now, if you read a little further into the epistles, Paul has a slightly different take on how that went down. 
According to Paul, he arrived and he stood up to Peter. How dare you think that these are lesser Christians because they weren't Jewish first? How dare you think that I need to spend my time shackling them to 613 different commandments when Jesus said there are two, love God and love your neighbor? You have a much better chance of remembering the two than the 613. And so Paul stands up, according to him, and says, that is not right. Now, it's right for you, it's right for them, but it's not right for me, and it's not right for these people. And already right there, it could have come down to, we're going to pick one over the other. One of these two will win. One of the two communities will lose. We could have picked that. But what instead happens is that Paul looks within and says, there has to be a way. There has to be a way forward. I was a sinner. I was a Pharisee. I was the one that was pursuing their deaths. I was there when Stephen was stoned to death. They laid their coats at my feet. But Christ has changed me. And I can never be the same. Which means that Christ is doing new things. And if Christ is doing new things, he can do it with new people. And we have to let that happen. And so Paul does something really remarkable. He says, I understand why you are worried. You're worried that we're going to divide the assets. We're going to divide the people. We're going to divide up the energy and the ability to be effective if we are not lockstep with one another. But I am covenanting with you. I will neither disparage you nor become a barrier or an obstacle to your ministry. And to show you my good faith, I will take up an offering in all of my church communities. And I will send that back here so that you can truly focus on what you need to do. And we will liberate you from the fear of not having enough. And I don't have it in the scriptures, but I'm pretty sure Peter went, that would be amazing. And they separated. And then Christianity seems to be rolling along at a pretty good clip until you get to the point right around the time where you get some German troublemakers. You get to the point which we belovedly call the Protestant Reformation, because we're not Catholic. And in the Protestant Reformation, we look at a young man who is himself a Roman Catholic priest, and he's got it pretty good. In Catholicism, being ordained is a sacrament, which means that the vast majority of Catholics will never get to experience that sacrament, whether they want to or not. And he doesn't have to purchase indulgences to ensure that he's not going to languish in purgatory or burn in hell. He's got the grace of the church. He doesn't have to worry about a lot of things. The church is taking care of his food needs. It's taking care of his clothing, taking care of where he lives. He has it pretty good compared to a lot of people in Europe at that time, especially where he's serving in Germany. As a German Catholic priest, he's got things pretty good. They've taught him Latin. He can read his Bible. But maybe it's because he has things so well that he starts to look around and go, why is it so good for me and so bad for them? Why is it that the people that I am serving the body and blood of Christ to are struggling with everything from feeding themselves and their families to having enough? Why is it that they can't even read for themselves how glorious our God is? And they can't because the Catholic Church at this time is only printing Bibles in Latin. And very few people can afford to be educated in Latin, much less learn to read and write in it. And so the, the Catholic priesthood have been kind of granted a monopoly in that. 
And so they have the Bible, but if you can't speak and read Latin, you don't. And Martin Luther says, if we really want people to understand with the fullest effect who God is and what God is doing, then they need to have this. And so he comes up with, you know, 94 other things to complain about. And he writes his big list and he nails it on the walls of his church, on the doors outside. And in doing so, he is staking his claim. It doesn't matter how good I have it if we all aren't blessed. We are called to do better. He's asking, he's looking within, and he's seeing that as good as he thinks he has it, it can be better in here. And as good as he has it here, it must be better out here. And he's fighting. He is battling the Pope. And you thought Peter was impressive. The power of the Pope by this time is supreme. The Pope has an army at this point. And the Pope can absolutely destroy Peter, can destroy Martin Luther, unequivocally. But Martin Luther believes that the future of Christianity is making sure that Christians have equal access, equal access to God's grace where you don't need indulgences, equal access to the sacraments so that you too should have the fruit of the vine and the cup, and equal access to the scriptures. He believes that this is necessary, not for him, but for you, for me. We need this. And so he fights an epic battle. And he's not trying to start something new. That was never the point. He wasn't trying to create something entirely different. You'll notice that that's not what Paul thought he was doing. It looked different. It was two different people. But it was the same Jesus Christ and the same grace. He wasn't trying to break away. He was trying to figure out how to reach a different group of people. And here is Martin Luther doing the same thing. But sometimes it doesn't work out the same way. And even though Martin Luther and the Pope and all the bishops and the cardinals are probably reading the same scriptures that you and I read, they get to the point where they realize you are too far down the road into something that is not what we are. And more than that, not what we want to be. And so they cut him off and cast him out. And he starts that incredible denomination known as Lutheranism. And he starts it first by giving the people the Bible in German, making sure that they have access to the sacraments, every part of them. And he lays a new groundwork that we can call the question, and God forbid they should tell us that we can't stay, we can not only survive, but we can thrive. And so he sets a new tone. He issues a new challenge to people who wonder if they can make a difference. And so some Oxford young men are going to think about that. They're going to think about how can we help make our beloved denomination better? Surely the Church of England can still be even more amazing. Surely we can open up and expand who is impacted and transformed by our sacraments and our understanding of God's grace. So much so, they're so in tune with God's grace that they start to articulate it in a very specific way. And so John and Charles Wesley and the others start to realize that they're not out here to create something new. They were born Anglicans and they will die Anglicans. 
But what they're trying to do is give a whole other group of people some hope and some language around grace that will help them to discover the truth of the cross. That was the purpose. But that was internally motivated. The entire thing came from, you know, I can be better. I can be a better Christian. I can be a better clergy person. I can be a better Anglican. I can be a better Englishman. I can be better. They were driven to excellence. And in the pursuit of that excellence, what they discovered was God's grace. And they couldn't keep it for themselves. They had to share it with others. And so Methodism began as a pursuit for inner excellence. And if I'm going to pursue excellence, and you're going to pursue excellence, and you're going to pursue excellence, maybe we can get together and help each other pursue excellence. Mine may not look the same as yours, but together, united by Christ, we're going to get better. And so they started. Methodism has always had that spirit in the pursuit of excellence. In our Methodist talk, we talk about going on to perfection in God's love, which is not to be confused with being perfect. It's an entirely different thing. The only one who's perfect is God. But we do believe that if you pursue excellence within endlessly, that you might, you just might get to the point where you can stop your willful disobedience, your own intentional sin. You're still going to have to wrestle with sin. It's still going to be there. The unintentional sin and what happens when the world is sinful and broken. You're still going to have to deal with that. But wouldn't it be nice if you weren't adding to that? And we call that going on to perfection. We believe in it so deeply that we still make clergy to this day swear in clergy session, that we believe that we can go on to perfection and we are earnestly striving for it. And I'll tell you what, they're like, do you believe that you can go on to perfection? And everybody's like, yeah. And they're like, are you earnestly striving for it? And you're like, yeah. Sure. Every day you want me to try to be better? It's a lot of grace. That's what we have. A lot of grace. Never runs out. And so we still today see this, this maybe obscured, it's not hidden, but maybe it's a little opaque, the fact that within we are called to excellence. We are not the people that are just like, yep, did that, moving on. We are a people who are called to be like, we did that. How did it work? How did it go? What did we learn? What did we discover? How can we do it better? What are we never going to do it again? Because that was a hot mess. We are those people. We should be that way about our worship. We should be that way about our finances. We should be that way about our missions and our ministries. We should be that way about everything because we should be that way about us. Do you ever get up in the morning or go to bed at night and examine yourself and think, am I really the best disciple that I could be today? What could I have done differently? And there's probably a part of you, I know there's a part of me that goes, you know what, Jesus is just lucky I made it through today. Let's be honest. Jesus is just lucky that I made it through today and I didn't murder anybody. But that's not good enough for Jesus. Jesus doesn't deserve a bunch of people who just didn't murder anybody today. Jesus deserves better. And so you think to yourself, okay, how can I get better? Searching the scriptures, praying by myself and with others. Being in a small group of accountability. And accountability isn't just pointing out and being like, this is where you are really crappy. 
Accountability is saying, let's talk about what you have that's good. I can remember this past year when I was asked to facilitate a preaching shop in the licensing school for licensed local pastors. These were people who, within a month, were going to come to annual conference, and they were going to be licensed. We were going to give them sacramental authority and a church and a reverend title and say, have at it. And I asked the group when I got there, because I had already read their sermon manuscripts, and I got there, and I said, okay, just so I understand what we're talking about, how many of you have been to seminary? How many of you going to seminary? All right, well, that totally changes what we're doing today. And I said to them, I said, okay, fine, then this needs to be important. This needs to be functional for you. How about this? I'm not going to point out what your problems are. Because trust me, God has given me a really good gift for that. But I'm not going to do it. I said, because you know why? Because I have great faith in the people called Methodists, and they will be happy to point out what is wrong with your sermons. Let's not do that here. Instead, let's try something different. Let's lean into your strengths. What is it that you do well? Let's work on that. Let's make sure that what you do well, you recognize that you do well, and how that it is fruitful, and how can you even get better than that? Let's figure that out. Because every person who is called to the ministry of the word has gifts for the ministry of the word. And those are the things that keep us going. So let's figure out what yours are, and let's really strengthen those things up here. Let's do that. And afterwards, one of them said, I really thought that you were going to come in here and like rip us a new one. And I didn't tell them, but that was totally on the menu. I was totally on the menu. I had read their sermons. You think I would have ever submitted that in preaching class? No. But I'll tell you what. When I got there and I met them, when I laid eyes on them and they were no longer a name at the top of the paper, when I got there and got to see their excitement and yet their anxiety, because it's very exciting to go and be a pastor. It's also a little nerve-wracking. And at this point in my life, I had the benefit of not just three years of seminary education and a master's in divinity, but I have been doing this since 2006. So I have a little bit of practice. And I remember looking at them, and I was like, wasn't I bright-eyed and bushy-tailed like that at one point? Wasn't I so eager, the future was so big and bright? Wasn't I like that? And then I decided that right then and there, I was going to be their champion. I was going to encourage them. There's enough people in this world that will tear you down. You don't need any more in the church. But the church is called to build each other up. I think somebody once said that in the Bible. Yes, build each other up. And so a couple months later, or a month later, I should say, about a month later, when I ran into them at that incredible gift to Methodism called Annual Conference, I don't know how they recognized me, but they did. And they were like, thank you. For what? For helping us. Well, I mean, that's kind of the gig, right? Like, I was supposed to show up and help you. That was kind of the point. But then I thought about it, and I realized that by helping them, I'm helping me. Because somebody that I know and love might be in their church. They might get moved. They could come here to this church one day. And all of you would be in their hands. They needed to know that there was somebody who was cheering them on. 
They needed to know that they did have gifts and graces for ministry. They needed to know that at the end of the day, God has this. That they are in the most capable hands of all eternity. And that it's going to be all right. They had done all of this work. They had had to convince the district committee of ordained ministry that they had a call. They had to convince them that they had the ability to even try. And here they were in a crash course that lasted less than a week trying to figure out how to be a pastor. They didn't need any more trials and tribulations. But I could have been one. Oh, I could have been a big one. Literally and figuratively. I could have nitpicked their sermons apart. I could have made them cry. But you know what? None of the people that ever made me a halfway decent pastor ever did that to me. And I've had some crappy sermons in my life. That first one, ooh, not good. Not good. But we get better when people are engaged with us. We get better when people care. But one of the first people that needs to be engaged in care is us. Those people were there because they want to be their best for you. They want to be the pastor that you need them to be. They want to be the preacher that God needs them to be. They want to be what they are called and destined to be. They don't need us getting in the way. Have you ever had anybody that was a barrier to you? And you've probably had those moments where you're like, I would never do that to somebody. But then he did. Those are those moments where you realize, you know what? There's work to be done in here. There's still work to be done. Because at the end of the day, is someone who encountered you this day going to look back and look up to God and go, I am so glad that they were in my life today. I am so glad for the kindness they showed me. I am glad for the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace, the love, the compassion. I am so glad. Maybe it didn't bring about world peace. Maybe it didn't eradicate all of my problems. But you know what, God? For that moment, my soul was satisfied. And if enough Christians do that, it's not just a drop of grace here and there. It is an outflowing, it is a perfect storm of grace, washing away sin and doubt and fear. That is what we are being offered. That is the future that we can be a part of, but only if we do the inner work. And I'll tell you, it's hard to do the inner work. It's not easy to do the inner work, and sometimes it can be downright humiliating to do the inner work. Have you ever done inner work and been embarrassed and it's just you and God? And you're like, I'm really sorry that I have to tell you this, but this is bad. But what did John read in the psalm? I knew what was on your tongue before you said it. I know what's in your heart before you manifest it. I know what you're thinking before you do. And I still love you. God is trying to tell us that it is in the journey, not the results. It's in the journey. And so every year, every United Methodist clergy person is forced to do this. 
There's generally a subgroup of the church that we do this with. Usually it's like the staff parish relations committee, or uh, in, our, in our case, in our church, it's a, an executive function of the church council. And you get to sit with them. And historically, I've been doing this ever since I was here in the Virginia Annual Conference in uh, 2008. And I'll tell you what, it's a lot of fun to sit down and tell everybody three things that you do pretty good. Yep, I do those pretty well. It's not so fun to sit there in front of a room of people and identify three things that you don't do well or that you don't do at all. And if that's not hard enough, then you have to say, here's how I'm going to get better. Here's my plan to not be so crappy next year. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. Because like those pastors who were hungry at licensing school, I'm hungry. I want to be my best for you. You deserve, you don't deserve my best, you deserve God's best, which far surpasses mine. But I'm never going to be able to give you anything of God if I'm not working to be the best Christian that I can be. And so we do the work because there's a reality to not doing the work. And if you've ever known people who are complacent, have you ever wanted to go see a doctor who's going to do heart surgery on you? And they're like, well, I haven't really looked at anything since I graduated from med school 10 decades ago. Probably not what you want. Do you want Christians in your small groups that are leading your missions and your ministries who are like, yeah, you know, I once joined a church, but I haven't really paid any attention to the Bible in about three years? Probably not. But here's the one that really matters. It's not whether you can quote scripture. That's not the point. Quoting scripture is very low on the totem pole. It's not important. What is important is that when the moment comes and someone needs God's grace, are you ready, willing, and able to show them God's grace? And what does God's grace look like if you haven't read your Bible? What does God's grace taste like if you haven't had communion? What does God's grace sound like if you've never had anybody speak it to you? That's the future of the church. We decide who we are going to be. And the next phase of Methodism will happen. But who are we going to be? We have been part of a denominational trajectory that is defined first and foremost by grace. Are we, as individual disciples, defined first and foremost by grace? Do we offer it as readily as we breathe? Do we give it as readily as we say hello? Are we a people who are reflecting outwardly the grace that we have received within? And if we become those people, the future is bright and beautiful. But if we choose to stay where we are comfortable, if we choose to let the outside world, the ways of the earth and our fear and anxiety become the new definition of who we are, then Methodism is truly part of the history of Christianity. But I don't believe that for a second. As long as there are people who think that God's grace trumps everything else in the world, as long as there are people who are willing to do everything necessary to stop sinning, as long as there are people who recognize that the greatest strength in the church is the relationship between the people within it, then Methodism will never die. 
will never die. And maybe we came along at a point where most people don't die for being Methodists. Fortunately, we had reached a point in Christendom where we didn't kill people who had a different understanding of Christianity. But I know that there have been Methodists who have been persecuted for their beliefs. I know some who are persecuted around the world to this day for their beliefs. Are you willing to take a hit to be more graceful? That will be the decisions that we will make. Is it more important to be right or righteous? If it's important to be right, you will do very well in the world. If it's important to be right, you won't do very well in the church because none of us are right. Even Abraham found that out. Most people forget that the story of Abraham is of a really bad liar. Abraham is a crappy liar. And he tries it repeatedly. And he's not good at it. And it causes harm every time he does it. Not just for him and his spouse and the monarch. It causes trouble for the entire nation when he lies. And yet... The Bible is very clear that it is his faith in God that makes him righteous. He is not right, but he is righteous. And if you want to be right, then there's a whole history, a whole genealogy here of people that are going to be problematic for you. But if you want to be righteous, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be liberated from your sin and your doubt and your death, if you would like to be a disciple that Jesus looks at at the end of the day and says, well done, good servant, then Methodism is going to be of great help to you. May we be a people who declare boldly and outwardly, tangibly to the world, it's not about being right, it's about being righteous. And only the grace of God can make us that way. And that's what we are called to share. That's who we are called to be. And that gives me great hope for the future of a people called Methodists. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.